The role of the modern day pastor and ministry leader is changing. More and more pastors around the world today are ministry leaders who are doing multiple jobs and wearing multiple hats. They are bivocational or co-vocational leaders. They may be pastors looking for creative ways to use their church or staff to create income and revenue for sustainability. They may be ministry leaders who are looking for ways to launch for-profit initiatives or integrate innovation into their organization. They may be those who want to do missions globally and find creative ways to create sustainability. Or they may be marketplace leaders who are called to stay in the marketplace, but want to be part-time pastors, lay pastors, start ministries or nonprofits. This is the age of the new ministry leader. They wear different hats and do different things. They are technologically savvy and global. They are who God is using to make an impact in cities and communities around the world. This is the Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast, and these are their stories. Well, good morning, everyone. I get a chance today to meet with a new friend uh, who I am just getting to know, Lauren Bronson Petrus. And so good morning to you, Lauren. Good morning, my friend. So good to be with you. Hey, so let me ask you a little bit, Lauren, you are more so, would you describe yourself as a California girl and then now living in the Midwest? Talk to me about your history and what you're doing right now. Yes, Tommy. Thank you so much. I am a uh, true California girl, born and raised California girl, uh, was raised by an extraordinary single mother. We lived outside of LA and in the Bay Area. But then um, I fell in love with a Michigan boy. So now I call Detroit home. Um, and it's, you know, there's snow here, Tommy, which has been a bit of a struggle for me, but, um, I get to California often. So that's all a girl can hope for. Yeah. Hey, Lauren, let me ask you a quick question for someone. Is this your first time living in the Midwest in your life? No. So my mom is actually from Michigan and all of her family's out here. So there were certain times growing up, you know, elementary school, middle school, where my sister and I would, um, go with my mom and we'd stay with our grandparents for a little bit in Michigan. Got it. Is there a difference? How would you describe the difference between West Coast versus Midwest? Are there differences in your opinion that you've noticed? Yes, you know, absolutely. Um, there's definitely, you know, that typical uh, West Coast uh, relaxed sort of culture and, and vibe, you know, uh, on the East Coast and Midwest, there's, there's that hard work and that grit that um, I've been noticing. And then, you know, in California, there's the beaches, there's uh, such a laid back uh, culture, but there's a real um, in tune in the West Coast. I think there's a deep uh, connection to art and to culture, and yeah. I think the Midwest is still kind of catching up a little bit. But California, I think, can definitely learn from the Midwest's grit. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of times now living in Chicago all my life, the West Coast there is culture, there is arts, there is film. East Coast we think of now uh, Wall Street, everything. The Midwest seems to be a hodgepodge. There is a little small film industry where a lot of times the uh, all these TV shows are coming out, Chicago PD, all medical PD, whatever it is, or Chicago Med or whatever. But then you also have a little bit of tech, you have blue collar, you have farm. So it's a little hodgepodge of different things. I totally agree. And I think that's the... Um that's the, the strength and uh, of the Midwest, right? So that there's a lot of people, I feel one of the things that people describe the Midwest the most is authenticity. So I feel like there's people who are just being more transparent, they're authentic, but they're also just trying to figure out themselves and who they are and taking little bits and pieces of what they like from either coast. 
Yeah. Lori, I want to talk to you about your history a little bit today, but also the purpose of this conversation is for you, you serve as a Christ follower working with churches, working with nonprofits, working with ministries in the area of management, strategic development, all of this stuff. The business side, sometimes you're not taught in seminary, but here I am looking at your history as well, too. You graduate at Eastern Michigan University with a bachelor's in public relations. Cornell, then, you did a certificate in high-performance leadership. Northwestern in master's in organizational change. You first started out in PR, and you've gradually shifted a little bit. What was your thought graduating from Eastern Michigan? What did you want to do with your PR degree? Yeah, great question. So I think the ever since I was a little girl, I've been fascinated just by understanding humans, um, how we think, how we react. Um, and so I actually think it started from when I was a young girl, my um, mom had to move from job to job. So by the time I was 20 years old, I had moved 15 times. So it's in and out of schools in LA and Bay Area, sometimes in Michigan. And so I was constantly exposed to new cultures and I had to really understand how to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, so I think that a fascination of me understanding the environment, learning to adapt who I was the based on the situation around me in order to make friends. I mean, you know, in a young girl's mind, that's what I was looking for. I just wanted to fit in, meet some friends. So I think that translated as, as an adult into, okay, I have developed a skill set where I'm able to uh, speak in a way to people from a PR in a PR perspective in a way that people understand. So from a strategic perspective, how to adapt language so that it is the most effective. So in uh, when I was in college as a um, uh, getting my bachelor's, I assumed that I was more interested in external communication. So how an organization communicates externally. But as I was, I was in the publishing and media world. Um, I was driving, getting really successful on that, I realized though I was more passionate about what would happen inside of an organization. So that just, that kind of got me interested in how are there such communication gaps inside of an organization that's supposed to be aligned? How come people can't bridge the gap if they're all looking at the same mission or supposedly have the same value? So along the way, I got more interested in how to become a strategic communicator, how to how leaders are more effective in one way than another. And so much of it has to do with communication. So I didn't even know what I'm doing now existed. I did some digging around. I got um, a certificate at Cornell University in leadership studying it. And then I eventually got into Northwestern. And I just realized that my passion and my skill set is more about the internal communication and structure of an organization than external. But here's the thing, Lauren, it, it took a while for you to figure out. A lot of times I talk with people, they're wondering what that journey is. What right. you thought was your journey was completely different. Totally. Here you were at Eastern Michigan University in PR. You were always thinking about how can I communicate and do PR with outside organizations only to realize over a course of time, you were really interested in what was going on inside the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact, um, you know, let's say there's a great event or a new launch of a, of a magazine or a big, exciting publishing media moment. And I noticed that the team or the employees themselves weren't happy or they were skeptical or suspicious or unhappy with their leadership. They themselves didn't even believe what they were trying to get the public to believe in. And I it just 
it bothered me. So I wanted to investigate that. I tend to be a little bit of a Nancy Drew about it. So I definitely um, just would ask around and, you know, I would meet with leaders and, you know, the Lord really blessed me in a way that I um, was brought into meetings at high executive levels, even when I was right outside of school that I necessarily shouldn't have been in based on my, my title, but because they recognized that I had a skill set for understanding the root of an issue and what was really going on human condition. I was brought into boardrooms and in executive level meetings where I was like, oh my goodness, people don't like the leader. The leader is not making, his communication is actually hindering him or people are going every single day, spending 60 hours a week at this place for a mission they don't believe in. But I have to then work on the PR part where we're trying to get people to believe in something they don't. So I just didn't like that. (laughs) Well, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. The one thing that actually sticks out and you've worked as a media specialist for Eastern Michigan University. You've worked with our media, with their publishing. You've also done a lot of stuff with Echo Media. The one that I want to hone in is you were the executive assistant right out of college to the CEO. Talk to me about that. In some sense, you look at this job, you've risen up the ranks, but in some sense, you started as an assistant working for a CEO. Talk to me about those years and how it shaped you into the leader you are today. Oh, I love this question, Tommy. And I truly believe in this role particularly that this is what set me on my compass compass and my road to success because um, I was actually in high school when I first started uh, in this role as the executive assistant to the CEO of a large consulting company in San Francisco at the time. And, you know, I was just a very hard worker. But to be honest, I didn't know what I was doing. I was in high school. You know, I didn't have much to offer. But I remember the CEO drilling me with questions about values about leadership more than any of my administrative skills that I would need to do this job. And I was so inspired by this leader. And so I ended up taking on that role and I was there for four years. And that's where, Tommy, I think I really got an idea to see what kind of leadership skills truly inspire people, inspire a team. working with organizations where people really disrespect the leader or there's so much disorganization going on. I was I was a fly on the wall to all of that. I never left the CEO's side. So for four years, I had a front row seat to seeing how effective leadership works and how it doesn't and what I wanted to do differently when I could eventually step into some bigger shoes. Well, and that's a key. A lot of times you're learning from the leader, but you're looking at the bad and the good of leadership at, at its best. And you're saying, okay, Wow, that's how they handle the situation. Or I would handle the situation differently. If it, and the reason I say this is when I graduated from Washington University in St. Louis, my very first job was in the telecommunications industry building cell towers. And the director of operations who I interviewed with said to me, you have zero experience. You have no engineering degree. Why in the world should I hire you? I said, I have no experience, but I will work the hardest out anyone here. And in one year's time, I will make a contribution to the company. He says, great. So then I was a project coordinator. We had just acquired 200 towers from Verizon Wireless. He says, go put that file room in order. And I learned what it meant to create systems. But then I had a project manager by the name of Dan, who came alongside with me, mentored Help me to understand what every single document meant, what it meant to oversee a big project. In nine months' time, I got promoted in my first job as project manager. And so, but I learned through him what 
what it meant. But it was all those years of being in the file room that forced me to do the discipline of always being in order, always being organized. That has still helped me to this day. Oh, I could not agree more. Absolutely. And even with me dealing with the psychology almost of leaderships, uh, of leaders, I realized what really ticked off the CEO. I realized the little moments or how to make something, how to get someone to put their defenses down, how to get a team um, an alignment greater by watching things that happened along the way. And so same thing, organizationally learning different systems, procedures, processes in an assistant role, but you know, that true grit watching the whole time, it definitely uh, set me on the path that I am today for sure. Yeah. So let me ask you, your your company, you started, uh, I'm looking at it for the last five years, Culture Organization Strategist for Boundless and Company. What made you decide to go off on your own? You could have easily worked for a corporation or a company. What made you decide, I'm going to make this step to go off on my own? Yeah. You know, Tommy, um, I never am surprised when the Lord says pivot um, because yeah. I was at uh, our media. I was doing very well. Um, and it, in a lot of ways, it was an organization that I just thought I would be at for a very long time. I was uh, very successful there. But to my point earlier, when I was talking about how my title didn't mean I should be in all of these meetings with executives all the time, talking about culture issues or talking about HR issues or team development. Why? I, when, when I first started there, they just noticed I would insert myself and be like, to the CEO or to different um, vice presidents, I'd be like, well, maybe if you adjusted your language here, you know, they didn't necessarily ask for that, but I would kind of just give some ideas. And then they realized, well, that actually did work. And so executives would come to my office and ask me, hey, how I have to have a bat, like a, a conflict resolution meeting with this person. How should I say it? And my title had nothing to do with that, right? So over time, I realized, okay, I have a skill here. I have a passion for it. God has given me, um, value in this that other leaders are seeing. And at the same time, I was also volunteering at nonprofits in the area. So um, I was just helping with anti-human trafficking organizations, just a general volunteer. And while I was at these organizations, I would notice little things. Oh, hey, maybe if you tweak, the, tweak this system, what if we set up this process to maybe help streamline the event? What if when you have this meeting with your, bo your board, you talk about this? And so people started to wonder, wow, like this is great, can you help us? And so I started getting contracts on the side, just for me, I thought I was just helping them out and it was interesting for me while doing my full-time job. But then um, that side gig, so to speak, ended up turning into a full-time hustle to the point where I locked myself in my prayer closet and was like, Lord, do you want me to stay at our and pursue a corporate career? Or do you want me to head time into a, a full-time entrepreneur? And I uh, spent two hours in that closet, Tommy. And afterwards I knew what God had me do. And so the next day I put in my notice and went full-time into Boundless. And at the same time, Lauren, is I love what you're doing is you still worked at your full time job, but you had some what they call side hustle, side yeah. gigs, something like that. Now you're building up. Do I want to do this? Do I like doing this? And now at the same time, I'm not sure if you were married at this time. I talk with some people who are always trying to figure out, well, I want to be an entrepreneur. It really also depends on the age of life that you're in. If you're yep. single, a lot of times without kids, it's a lot easier. But if suddenly you have two or three kids and you're the primary breadwinner, it may mean that you may need to do some side hustles or side gigs to see if it works out because it doesn't happen right away for you to get new businesses. Oh, no, that's absolutely true. And I think that, um, so I was married, actually, I got married relatively young. I was 24, and so I graduated college, and then six months later got married. And so during this whole trajectory, I was married the whole time. Um, 
I wouldn't have been in Michigan otherwise, Tommy, I'll tell you that, but I love him so much. I couldn't help myself. So, um, but so I think that it definitely created an anchor. It created a grounding for me to be secure in, in order to explore those possibilities. However, um, it was incredibly scary to have that conversation with my husband, you know, or, or anyone and be like, Hey, I'm going to leave this stable, um, successful job where I've gotten promotion after promotion in a very short amount of time. You know, if I had stayed an extra couple of years, I could have easily, you know, based on the trajectory that was going and with God's grace could have been in a, one of the most powerful people at the company. So I knew that that was there and the leaders there had even told me that. Um, so I had to really figure out what's, is this about comfort or is this about destiny? Is this about calling or is this about like what my current situation yeah. is and my inability to see what's ahead of me. And I realized, um, I think Jesus in so many ways, uh, exemplifies being a risk taker. And I really felt that he was calling me to, to take this, this risk. And so I felt secure in it. So for me, the hardest decision was, uh, the moment leading up to the prayer closet, the moment leading up to, Oh, should I this? Here's the pros and cons, you know, here's the different money situations. Here's what I would have to do to start an entire business on my own, start something from scratch. But the minute I, Firmly believe God told me I'm calling you to this and I've equipped you for it. You know, trust me. Honestly, Tommy, uh, a lot of that anxiety, it just went away. And it went away yeah. and God has been so good. I reached my five year goals in two. Um, so it's just been it's just been really extraordinary walking with him in that way. OK, but Lauren, let me ask is I, I love some people would say, OK, Lauren. What happens when you feel like this is what God's calling you to do and you jump in it, but then you're wondering, did I make the right decision? It isn't going according to plan. It's not easy. So do I pivot or do I keep going through it? How do you navigate through it sometimes? Because sometimes it doesn't, even though you met your five-year goals, right? It probably didn't go the way you thought it was going to go. No, right. And I think navigating is the perfect word for it because, you know, similar to like a ship on the sea, you may be the most experienced seaman or captain on the planet, but it doesn't mean that you're going to every single, you know, ship or route that you take is going to be the same. Um, so I think that just like even in organizations, navigating anything is navigating change. So for me, I think being able to stay nimble made me more um, formidable. So I think that if you have your eye on the horizon. I know and deeply believe in what I do, the value of it. I know what God said. That's something that stays tapped in, right? So for leaders, when any of us were like, okay, I know God said this, but all the ways that we go about doing it, our thinking, the, uh, the people we allow in our life, the different systems and procedures we can set up, the different tools we could use to help equip us become better leaders. Those are all things that can change. And so I think that being rooted in your true mission but then allowing yourself to be agile in all of the other ways that surround what your business are really keeps you in a place where you can question the, the things around you to use, but you're staying anchored in your real mission. And so I think that when leaders start to question their mission, you know, that's, I think it can be that it's, and it's human. I mean, all of us feel like nervous Did I do the right thing, you know, but I think that if you truly believe God called you to this mission that yeah. has to be anchored, and then maybe take a second look at all the other things that are going around you. Does something need to change? Does someone need to be removed? Do we need to bring someone in? And so I think oftentimes people feel like they're stuck on a certain path and that they can't make decisions, but it's really, I think, more of a fear of change and transition and being okay with being uncomfortable. Yeah. 
Yeah. And wouldn't you say a lot of times, even for you, the first five years starting out, the first two or three years, you're still trying to get your feet wet. You're still trying to figure out what contracts are good or appropriate. Oh, I had no idea. All that, right? No, I had no idea what I was doing by any means. So like, I just knew God called me to this, but anything from, I had never started a business before, let alone, you know, something completely from scratch. So no, without a doubt. So you, you wonder, um, you know, how do I didn't even know how to set up a PL sheet, Tommy? Like, I mean, like basic, mm. you know, entrepreneurial things. But um, that's my my point is I feel like you just are like, all right, who do I know? I literally went to someone who I knew was really great at math, who was a friend. And I was like, well, how should I how should I do this? You know, and the, and the, I just went to people who I knew were good in the areas that I was lacking. And it was kind of this hodgepodge of all this different information. And then as confidence grew and I learned and understood my business more, then, you know, I adjusted things from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As you now work with nonprofits, churches, everything like that, when they bring you in, is there a common problem they're all facing that you find, wow, this is, it feels like the same problem all the time. Is there a common problem or a common threat that they're bringing you in for? Mm. Good question. Um, I would say things pretty much get narrowed down to two categories. One, there's always people issues, right? People I, is the hardest part, I think, of, you know, honestly, any church or organization, just navigating different personalities, navigating expectations, navigating um, division or conflict or leadership. Um, so oftentimes what happens is uh, an organization will come to me and say, hey, these things are happening in my team. You know, there's high turnover or our employees seem less engaged or there seems to be a lack of innovation. And so they're kind of in their minds, I think, giving me what they think is the real problem. But what I tell them is these are all symptoms of a greater issue. So yeah. I, I come in and I'm like, let me analyze just like a, you go to a doctor for a checkup. Let me do, you know, the metaphorical like blood test. Let me look into the organization, do quantitative and qualitative analysis to figure out what's really going on here and then diagnose a real root issue, which may be there may be a lack of psychological safety amongst yeah. the group. There may be a lack of authenticity and leadership that makes people feel suspicious. So that tends to always be. Uh, part of whether it's a church or an organization I work with that definitely tends to be there. And then I think the second is just navigating change. You know, Tommy, that's really rough. And coming out of 2020, you know, the, all of us had to just figure out what do we even do next? What, how do we respond to our team? How, if we have to let people go, how do we talk to them in a way that makes them feel safe and that we love them? But at the same time, we have to protect the organization. You know, we have to make all these sacrifices. So it's very difficult to navigate change when you've never been in a place before. You know, none of us knew what 2020 would give. And so I think right now, all the all of my clients are asking the question, how am I going to stick around for the next 10 years, yeah, 20 yeah. years? How am I going to how am I going to survive? How do I have to you know talk to my board to get them to realize we need to change the way we do things around here? How do I talk to my donors in a way that makes them understand our heart, but at the same time let them know that things are going to have to change and they may not like that? How do we do that? So the big how do we do that in reference to change, which basically you know change is situational. I always say change is situational. Transition is psychological. So how someone handles the psychology of transition with their team, with their donors, with their leaders is imperative. And so I would say those two things, the people, the people, the yeah. root people issues and navigating change. And I know a lot of times you do a lot with church work and nonprofit and ministry work. Would you say a lot of times with churches, you encounter some of these same problems as well too? 
oh, without a question, without question. And I honestly think that the church in some way deals with it more heavily because they, um, you know, we, people look to the church for leadership. People look to the church for navigation, for hope, um, for these things. And so I think there's an added pressure amongst church leaders to lead in a way that they want to, but that doesn't mean that, you know, they always know what to do either. I mean, they're dealing with organizational issues within their church, you know, because the church is, it is an organization in many ways. And so when they're trying to navigate, how do I keep, you know, our attendees happy with something that the staff, you know, doesn't want us to do and like navigating the balance of what that's like without, while trying to be integritous and create communication because this is someone's church home. I think there's definitely an added pressure, Tommy, um, to that, that churches see. And so for you, a lot of times is, do you spend a lot of time meeting with not only the overall leader of the organization, but a lot of the different people who work in the organization? Is it a lot of communication? Is it a lot of just one-on-one meetings? Yeah, you know, I I wouldn't just say that that's the overarching, but I would say communication is imperative. And oftentimes, one of the things I encounter when I'm working with a team is there's some tox. let's say there's some toxicity on a church staff for some reason. There's yeah. some suspicion going on or there's just something that usually the, you know, the pastor will some, come and say to me, I feel that there's suspicion, but I'm not sure what it is. And I uh, don't think yeah, yeah, yeah. So then what I'll do is I'll have these one-on-one interview meetings, um, you know, with these, with these individuals. And it may end up being something honestly, relatively small, such as, um, well, I don't feel that the leader communicates with me. Uh, often or in an authentic way, or I feel like he's telling me what I want to hear. And so I'm suspicious of other things. And so when I come back to the leader, you know, I may be like, Hey, it's not you. It's not who you are that they're suspicious of, but the way you're coming across is making you less effective. And so let's adjust how you're communicating with your team in order to see the transparency in order to maybe lead with a little bit more authenticity so that your people really feel that they have a grasp on where you're taking them. And so, you know, it's it's an adjustment, I think it's so much, it's, you know, there are times where certainly leaders, uh, there's some bigger level issues going on, but oftentimes it's an adjustment um, in how you come across in order to make people feel more safe, inspired. Lauren, are, are many of the leaders you work with, are they open to new ideas? Are they open to that feedback? Like what you're saying is, hey, look, I don't feel like I'm in trust. Or I don't feel like, when you bring this feedback to them, are they usually open to ideas? Um, that is the question, Tommy. Um, well, you know, honestly, this starts as probably one of my biggest uh, failures when I started at, at this company is I uh, would just, you know, be like, oh, let's let's do this. I'm excited to help you. And so I would just, you know, get so excited to start a new contract with a leader. And I realize, and you know, sometimes I would realize, wait, they genuinely think that they're not the problem and that yes. I, and okay. I have to go fix everyone else. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. But, but no, culture is the top down. Like as the leader, I mean, there's the, the privilege and responsibility of leadership is the privileges you get to lead and inspire. The responsibility is if something's going wrong, it's, it's on you to fix it, even if it's not in your department, so to speak, or whatever. So if people, if leaders were saying, well, I understand what you're saying to me, Lauren, you know, you did this presentation. I have all these facts. I have all these numbers before me. I see all these interview, this data, but that's wrong. It's, it's them. So go fix them. That's what I want you to do. And yeah. I got to this point where I'm like, but I, it's not like, sure, there's things I can do, but that's not the root issue. Yeah. And I'm only interested, you know, time is our biggest commodity as nonprofits and um, as in churches, like we don't have the time or the margin to just, you know, fluff around and 
put money and resources into a time where that's not the real root. So I'm very passionate about that. So something I had, that was a failure I learned early on is I didn't interview the leader as well yeah. as I did that from the get go. So now what I do is I actually, you know, I understand that when I'm meeting with a prospective client, they're certainly interviewing me, but I'm also interviewing them, Tommy, to make sure, you know, are you willing to do the work? If that means that you have to be part of, if that means that you're part yeah, of the work, yeah, yeah. you know? And so if there's not that humility or that willingness to say, Hey, you know, we're all in this as a team, me, I'm part of this team. This team needs help instead of the, you know, well, I'm the leader, go fix them. Um, those are the leaders I can work with. So now I do a very thorough interview before I meet with any client to make sure it doesn't mean that they have to all the answers. It doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. Right. I mean, none of us want to, especially as leaders, you know, hear that you're maybe, you know, how you're communicating or, you know, yeah. how you're leading meetings is part of the problem. But if you're willing to do the work, people will genuinely ins be inspired by it. And if your team knows that you're going through the process of adjusting and adapting and becoming a better leader, they're going to want to do the work as well. But if I, I always say this, if you're not walking the walk, why should anyone else? Yeah, I know one senior leader in a ministry organization, every time he gets feedback from his board, he comes back to his senior leadership team and says, look, here's the feedback that the board gave me based upon the 360 degrees that you guys filled out. Let's work on, and here's what I've actually worked with the board to address all these. Compared to two things is I work with a bigger organization, a ministry organization in Chicago. For about four years, I sat in all the employee meetings where they said, well, our survey shows that senior leadership does not give us embodied trust or entrust us with things. And that's why we have low engagement. And I'm sitting there. There's a simple answer to this. Why in the world is this going on for five years? Oh, my gosh. Exactly. Exactly. Another senior leader, I sat down there, I'm sitting there, uh, he says to me, younger people just need to learn how to be quiet and submit to the authority of leadership. And I'm sure that's why this thing is in such a flux. No, exactly. And, you know, how's that going for you? You know, that's the other thing I say is, you know, how's your retention? How's your turnover? How's your culture? How's your employee engagement? I mean, it's easy to want things just to be fixed because it makes the path easier. But I think that one of the things leaders need to remember is that they're, they have to speak different languages. So whether it's a generational issue, if you're a Gen X leader, you know, bridging the gap and learning how to speak the language of a, of a millennial or a Gen Z. And it doesn't mean that you agree with them. It doesn't mean that you agree, but it does mean that you're willing to adapt how you speak in order to have it received by the people you're working for or by the people that are working for you. So I couldn't agree more. And actually, you know, I was just with a client the other day and one of the things I was doing is leading a team development seminar. Um, there was a lot of um, distrust amongst the team, the, yeah. team, the executive team. And so what I said is I want everyone to write two positive things. There was about 12 people in the circle. Write tw two positive things about each person and one thing that you really struggle with them and be very specific. And I, I and, and this, the, the president was there as well. And so I'm having everyone, you know, write on a piece of paper, you know, specific things, two positives, one thing that they really want someone to grow in. The president pulls me aside and he says, well, I only want the positives. And I was like, I thought he was joking. So I laughed, you know, I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, I don't want that everyone to see, you know, the negatives that I, re I receive. I don't want people to know yeah. them, you know, to know, to write those down. I want to only receive the positives. And so I had to pull them aside and I said, so you want your team to go through something that you're unwilling to do yourself. And he was yeah. like, yeah, yeah, basically. And he was like, I shouldn't have to go through that. And I said, well, then you're, this is not going to work. 
Like this yeah. exercise is this exercise is not going to work. And he was like, okay, explain it to me a little bit. So then he finally got around to it. But it was just, you know, like to your point where it's like, wait, why would you expect something of your team that you're unwilling to do yourself? Yeah. And I, I find a lot of times, and I know we're running out of time here, Lauren, is it's a difference in generation is I'm 44 years old. All my life, I work with baby boomers. Mm -hmm. They grew up in a world where there are superiors, there are their bosses. They submit to their authority. Now with the younger generation, I did college ministry for 18 years, all right? right. I found out that I no longer could just tell the students what to do. I had to help them be on a journey to allow them to feel like they have ownership in what happens. And by doing that, allow me to be much more effective. But now you're mixing baby boomers with different generations who don't operate like that. And I find the younger generation says, or the older generation says, well, you need to submit to me. The younger generation will then say, well, then forget you. I'm not going to work with you. Uh, and so they disregard them. And so now you're always clashing all the time. Oh, exactly. And that's what I, one of the first things I do when I do my authentic leadership coaching is I say, all right, I'm going to teach you how to be bilingual, so to speak. So again, I know a little bit of Spanish, Tommy. It doesn't mean I'm fluent. It doesn't mean I, you know, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm, I can just go around speaking Spanish like I speak English, but it doesn't mean that I know enough to be able to get me some places that if I'm, if I'm visiting in Mexico or, or whatnot, I can get through. So with leaderships being able, leaders being able to learn, okay, to your point, Tommy, Gen Z wants to not only understand the mission, but under, uh, but respect it. They want to have their purpose. They want to respect it. So a leader just saying, go do this. If they don't understand it and they don't respect it, they're right. not going to stick around. So then and likewise, if it's, if a leader can take the time to have their team learn and respect or understand and respect what the mission is, then the Gen Z will say, well, I want to stick around with you for a little bit. Yeah. Very good. Hey, one last question. And the reason why, folks, that we're having Lauren on is when her time per, um, permits, I would love her to do some interview with other like-minded leaders. And we randomly got met because we're connected to an organization. And I said, I love your spirit. I would love for you to come up because you seem like you have a probing mind and you're able to ask good questions. You're always interested in what people have to say. For you, I mean, as you look back at your life, PR and experience, working with organization, how has God designed you? What is it? What are the passions as you look at it? It says, Tommy, this is how God has designed me. These are the passions that I have to make a difference for the gospel. What would you say to that, Lauren? Oh, what a beautiful, big question, Tommy. No, thank you for asking it. Um, I would say God has, uh, to your point about my probing mind, I'm very curious and I'm very interested in the human condition. So as uh as a believer in Christ, I believe that God, you know, is, oh, he's a balance of so many things. He's bold and humble. He's truth with grace. And so I think listening from leaders who've gone through, um, you know, are either starting a, a new church or are marketplace leaders in, in charge of hundreds and hundreds of people, there's something that we can all learn from each other. And what I love, Tommy, about the podcast and the missions of your organizations that you've set up is that you bring alongside people and say, hey, we may not be in the same office every day. We may even have different titles, but our heart and our passion and our mission is the same to yep. spread, yep. to be light and salt as leaders, to push forth the gospel, to bring, um, encourage one another and be passionate with one another along this journey. And so as the body of Christ, I think um, I've just, I've become a really, God has called me to be a place where through my curiosity and through my passion uh, to bring alongside allies, because we all are as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we may learn from one another so that we can be more effective and stronger for him. 
When you were in L.A., what, what neighborhood, what uh, city did you live in? What church did you attend in L.A., Lauren? Oh, my goodness. So this is going back. When I was in L.A., I was um, eight years and from so since I was born till I was about eight. So we actually lived in Compton. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we had, so I have, so we got some hustle there. And then we lived in Rancho Cucamonga. Yeah. And so we went to Saddleback. Got it. Very, very yeah. nice. Yeah. And Lauren, thank you. Thank you so much. I went over, but I just want to say thank you for making time out. And I look forward to more conversations with, with you here, Lauren. Oh, back at you, Tommy. Thank you so much for your time. It was a privilege. We'll talk soon, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Grow Center's Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast. To stay connected, make sure you subscribe to the Grow Center channel, rate and review this episode, and make sure to share on your social media platforms. We would love for you to follow along with the Grow Center on Instagram and Facebook at Grow Center Network and our website at www.thegrowcenter.com. See you next time.